Well, this is their third service to do this in, so we appreciate you all so much leading us, and Dustin and everybody else who's part of our music ministry. Great worship here this morning to focus our minds upon, uh, upon our great God. If you're uh, visiting here with us this morning, we're glad you're here. We're in a kind of a, a mini-series, a two-part series. We've left our study of the book of Philippians we've been in for the last uh, several weeks, and uh, we're focusing in on uh, the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, uh, this coming Tuesday, October 31st, is the 500th anniversary of the, what's often uh, stated to be the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we'll go back to Philippians next week. If you weren't here last week, you might go back and listen to that message. Uh, the PowerPoint I used is online as well, and you can listen to the message and uh, look at that PowerPoint. It might kind of fill in some more details for where we are this morning. Uh, but again, obviously, this Tuesday marks that 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, a German monk, uh, nailing his uh, protest against uh, some of the practices within the Roman Catholic Church on the, the castle door there, or the castle church uh, door there in uh, Wittenberg, Germany. And that was a monumental day in, in, in church history. It was a monumental day really in world history. In fact, as you read about this in various books, you'll uh, see that many people say that this date certainly changed uh, the world, or the church, but it, it even in, in a greater way changed the world. Uh, we, we talked about last time as we introduced this whole, this mini-series on the Reformation, we talked about how the Reformation was a lot of things, but really when you boil it down, there's two key issues in the Reformation. Uh, the Reformation was a Bible movement, and the Reformation was a gospel movement. It was a Bible movement in that it asked the question, what is our authority? What is the authority that we appeal to? Is it uh, the church? Is it popes and councils and traditions, or is it the Bible? And the second question is, uh, how does a person become right with God? It's a gospel movement. So above everything else, those are the two key issues. Where do we get our authority, and how can a person uh, be right with God? And it's kind of interesting. I thought about it this week. Our church is named Faith Bible Church. The first two words there, the word Bible, obviously, we hope communicates to people where we believe authority lies. Uh, we believe it's the Bible alone. And the word faith in our, the name of our church uh, uh, signifies to people that we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So even the name of our church, we're, we're heirs and beneficiaries of the Protestant Reformation. Faith and Bible there uh, show what we believe and shows that we're beneficiaries and heirs of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Reformation was a return to the Scriptures, uh, first and foremost. And it was a belief that one is justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And out of the Reformation came these five solas we talked about last week briefly. The word sola is the Latin word for alone. A sola scriptura, that's where it starts. What's the basis of our authority? Uh, the basis of our authority is the Bible alone. Um, sola gratia means grace alone. Sola fide, which we're going to focus on this morning, faith alone. Solus Christus is Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And in, in Martin Luther's day, the true gospel had been hopelessly lost and confused by centuries of error of adding human works uh, to faith alone in Jesus Christ. And last time we were together, I kind of gave an overview of the Reformation, some of the, the key players who were involved. And we focused a lot on the Scriptures, on what the Reformers recovered about the truth of the Bible and its authority. 
But this morning what I want to do is, is focus in on the second key issue of the Reformation, uh, how can a person be right with God? And I want to focus in on the life of, of Martin Luther. Let me read uh, for us, or I'll quote for you, Romans 1, 16 and 17. You might turn there. We'll be there in a few minutes. Um, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Romans 1, 17 was Martin Luther's verse. That's what it's called in, in church history. This is the verse that transformed his life and literally that transformed uh, the church. But let me quote the verse before it so we can get the context. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, uh, the righteous or the just uh, shall live by faith. There's an old saying I heard years ago that you can't be wrong about how to be right with God. You can't be wrong about how to be right with God. We've got to be right about how to be right with God. Now, you can be wrong about a lot of other things in life, and all of us are. But one thing we can't be wrong about is how to be right with God. Because if we're wrong about how to be right with God, the result is an eternity separated from God. And the Roman Catholic Church in Martin Luther's day, and even today, believes in progressive justification. The human activity and merit... Uh, cooperates in the process of salvation. And Martin Luther and others recovered the truth that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The watershed moment in Martin Luther's life, at least looking back on it now, was his hanging those 95 theses on the door of the castle church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And what these 95 theses were, they were written in Latin by Martin Luther by hand. They were objections or protests to some of the practices that were occurring in Roman Catholicism. Now, at that time, Martin Luther was a good Roman Catholic monk. He didn't even disagree with some of these things that were happening. He disagreed with how they were happening. And he became later a reluctant reformer because it snowballed from there to ultimately what is our authority? How can a person be right with God? And Luther began to say the only authority was the Bible and we're right with God through faith alone, which put him on a collision course uh, with the church of that day. So this is the event we often look at in Luther's life that we'll celebrate this Tuesday. But I want to back up in Martin Luther's life a bit. And what I want to talk about this morning is three key events in Martin Luther's life before he nailed the 95 Theses to the Castle Church door there in 1517. And these three events are, are the thunderstorm, the trip, and the tower. There's the thunderstorm experience, the trip to Rome experience, and then what's often called in Martin Luther's life, the tower um, experience. And uh, these three events happened five years apart. Um, I was listening to a sermon by uh, R.C. Sproul a week or so ago on the Reformation, and he pointed out how Luther had a crisis, it seemed like, every five years of his life early on. 1505 was the thunderstorm, the trip to Rome's 1510, and then the tower experience is 1515. So let's go back to 1505, where Luther's odyssey begins with this thunderstorm experience, as it's often called. I mean, July of 1505, Luther was making his way back home. I mean, he was 21 years of age, and a lightning bolt struck close nearby him. And it scared him to death, and so he collapsed literally on the wet, soaked ground. He collapsed in the ground on ter in terror, and he cried out, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. 
Now, nobody knows where that came from. And he himself says it was just kind of this involuntary statement that came out of his mouth. And of course, I believe it was the providence of God that led him to say that. He just finished his master's in philosophy. Um, he just begun studying uh, and receiving his doctorate in law. Um, his father wanted him to become a lawyer, his father Hans. And uh, Martin Luther, true to his vow, left getting his doctorate in law. He left law school, and he entered the Augustinian monastery to become an, uh, an Augustinian monk. Much to the chagrin of his father over the, the strong objections of his father who didn't want him to do this, and it actually took them some time uh, to be reconciled to one another. But Luther makes this statement, he just kind of says it out quickly, you know, help me, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. He, re- he believed that a vow was a vow and you have to keep it. So he became an Augustinian monk partly to fulfill the vow, but also lurking in the back of his mind, he thought that becoming a monk would get rid of some of the inner turmoil in his life. Because he's already beginning to experience this turmoil and the longing in his soul that he knew something was wrong in his life in his relationship with God. And so partly to fulfill the vow, but partly because of stirrings in his own life, um, he becomes an Augustinian monk. Because see, Martin Luther, like other people in that day, believed that he had to earn enough merit with God to get into heaven. And as a monk, he believed he had the best chance of saving his soul. I mean, after all, think of all the religious things that monks do. So he thought, surely if I become a monk, kind of this inner turmoil that I'm having uh, will go away. Uh, Martin Luther was terror-stricken at the idea of Christ as judge. He thought a lot about Jesus being the judge. And he thought a lot about the fact that God was righteous. And the great crisis in Luther's life was Luther knew that he wasn't righteous. And he knew that God was righteous And it just caused constant turmoil in his life, insomnia, depression, all kinds of struggles. But he goes into the monastery and he thinks, surely this will kind of solve my problems. Well, he goes into the monastery and Luther loves this. I mean, he just laps it up, the discipline, all the things they're going through. He thinks, boy, you know, surely I'll be able to please God with all these things. They got up at 2 o'clock in the morning. They prayed at 3 a.m., 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 in the afternoon. They ate two meals a day. Uh, Luther wore very rough, chafing underwear, just uncomfortable underwear, because he thought that by depriving himself in that way, he would please God. So everywhere he went, he just had rough, scratchy underwear on all the time. I mean, in in the dead of winter, he would sleep with no blankets to, to mortify the flesh. He almost froze to death on several occasions. And again, he believed that these, these deprivations uh, would somehow uh, please God. But the the problem is, Luther was involved in all these things, but the more he did all these things, the more troubled he became. And he couldn't find any peace in all the works and rituals and vigils and fastings he went through. You'll see later pictures of Luther where he's a pretty healthy-looking guy, but early on, I mean, evidently he was just a stick. Because he would would not only fast for three days at a time very often, but he would not drink any water. So no food or water Uh, for three days. He was burdened with condemnation. He lived under the crushing weight of his sin. And one of the ways he tried to get rid of this is through confession. He spent one time six hours straight in confession. He would literally wear out the confessors. And some of them would tell him, until you got something to really confess, don't come back. I mean, they got tired of just hearing all this stuff. But he, he later said that in his confession, sometimes he felt like he was near the point of insanity. 
just trying to get right with God. Um, here's uh, an Eric Metaxas. By the way, this is a great book on Luther. I highly recommend that. I'll give some quotes from it. He says, Luther's overactive mind was constantly finding ways in which he'd fallen short. And so every time he went to confession, he confessed all of his sins as he was supposed to do, but then knowing that even one unconfessed sin would be enough to drag him down to hell, he racked his brain for more sins and found more. He would torture himself afterward feeling that surely he must have forgotten something. Luther would confess negative thoughts about one of his brethren or his impatience with someone that morning or his poor attitude toward prayer. If he didn't have any such sins to confess, he would confess his pride at not having any, had any such sins. But for Luther, the more he tried to be holy, the more he saw that he couldn't be. The more he cleaned, the more furniture he moved, the more dirt he saw. That's descriptive, isn't it? And then uh, Metaxas says this, Luther was obsessive about confession. Once Luther actually continued confessing for six consecutive hours, probing every nook and cranny of every conceivable sin, and then every nook and cranny within each nook and cranny, he was simply determined to keep digging until he got to the bottom of it all. But listen to this statement by Metaxas. This is great. But he never did. He, never yet, he did not yet understand there really was no bottom, that we were sinful all the way down. That's a powerful statement that Metaxas adds. He couldn't get to the bottom of it because we're sinful all the way down. And so Luther is, is, is going through all this confession. And you think about it, how much wrong could you really do in a monastery anyway? I mean, there he is, is constantly confessing these things. So he felt condemned. He, he had no peace. He knew that he wasn't right with God. Another quote by him I love, he says, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there too. All my brothers will testify to that, for if I had gone on much longer, I would simply have martyred myself to death with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. So I'd have killed myself. I'd have kept going on. I'd have basically just taken my own life through all these vigils and fastings and all these things. But all that Luther was going through, it never, ever eased his conscience. Now, the second great event in his life occurs in 1510, so five years after this thunderstorm experience. Luther got the opportunity of a lifetime for a monk. The monastery he was in sent him to Rome on some, mon on some monastery business. So he gets to go uh, to Rome. And for a monk who knew that he was spiritually bankrupt, the greatest thing he could ever imagine is a trip to Rome. I mean, for, for literally for Martin Luther in that day, this was like winning the spiritual lottery. Because in Rome, pilgrims believed they were closer to the apostles and closer to the saints than anyone else. So Luther believed, surely when I go to Rome, I'll find peace for my troubled conscience and I'll find some rest. So he goes to Rome in 1510, travels 800 miles, it's an 800-mile walk, and he stays there for a month. And he says in his writings that when he first saw the city of Rome in the distance, he fell down to the ground. He prostrated himself down there on the cold ground and kneeled down there. And just in honor of the holy city. And when he got to the city, he describes, literally, he uses the words that he went around the city madly. I mean, like a madman going from place to place. Because it was taught back then, in fact, there was almost a point system that if you visited these certain relics, you know, they had Peter's bones and they had the chains that Peter wore and they had, you know, pieces of the cross and there was like almost 20,000 of these relics. 
And certain relics you visited, you kind of got more brownie points than other relics you visited. So he's just madly going around Rome, visiting all of these key sites, trying to, to uh, uh, rack up enough merit for himself. Uh, one person described Rome as that day as a gold mine for the soul. You could go and find all these things where you could somehow feel like you could please God. The problem is, though, in, in Luther's trip there, he became very disillusioned. If you're with us last week, I read a couple of quotes about the moral debauchery and depravity that was going on in Rome, and it was bad. I mean, it was really bad. If you weren't here last week, uh, you can go back and listen to those quotes from that. So he becomes disillusioned because Rome is morally corrupt. And he sees all the greed there, and he sees all the, 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 the extravagance. Um, he sees the immorality, the sexual immorality that's there. And he sees the insincerity of so much of the priesthood. I mean, there was a, there was a minimum time in which you were supposed to say the Mass. Some of the priests were saying three or four Masses within that time period. You're just going through it as fast as they could, you know, just to get it over with. And so Luther s- sees all this happening, and he doesn't know what to do, so... Uh, Luther is on this, this pilgrimage to Rome in 1510, and so one of the places he decides to go visit is uh, what's called the Scala Sancta, or the Holy Stairs. So if you've ever been to Rome, you know that uh, you have St. Peter's Basilica, which is the main basilica in Rome, but there are three others, and the oldest one is St. John's Basilica. It's called St. John's Lateran. And part of St. John's Lateran is this building, that the huge basilica is across the street, but um, this is a part of the, the whole complex there. And inside of this uh, structure here is the Scala Sancta, or the Holy Stairs. And uh, this is the sign that's there, and, and you can only climb these stairs on your knees. And it's 28 marble steps. Now, they've been covered now with walnut, you'll see in a picture in a moment, because they're wearing out from so many people climbing up them. So they've covered them in walnut so the original steps won't wear out. And Luther goes there thinking, surely that will give him peace and assurance because the, the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that this was the staircase that Jesus climbed up to appear before Pontius Pilate in Pilate's judgment hall in Jerusalem. Now, that's almost 90, that's 99.99 as far as you want to go, sure, that it's not those steps. But that's what they say. So people go there, I mean, you can feel as close to Jesus as you could ever feel. And uh, again, the, these steps, you can see them here, they're protected with, this, with walnut, and you climb up there. And back in that day, the Pope lived in a quarters not far from there. Sometimes he'd be up there, and he'll find some peace there. So Luther ascended those stairs on his knees. And uh, by the way, this is the only picture I'll show you with me in it to ruin the picture. But there I am right there, and, the, and uh, Cheryl's there with me. That's when I hadn't shaved for a while, my scruffy little beard on my trip. Uh, but you can see the people there climbing up there in the background. And Luther ascended the stairs on his knees, stopping at each step and kissing each step and reciting the Lord's Prayer. And he, he gets to the top there, and, he, and it, they believe that if you do that, you, you'll deliver your soul someday from purgatory. So he gets to the top, and he utters those famous words, who knows whether it be so. There's just more disillusionment. And he gets up to the top, you know, who knows if it's so. You know, is it, this isn't really doing anything. And I remember when Cheryl and I were there, we had gone to see St. Peter's Basilica, we'd gone to the Vatican, we'd, we'd, the museum, and all of that there. And this was the last place we saw in Rome, the last site that we saw before we left the next morning. We were there late, we got there just not long before it closed. And I thought to myself, of all the things we'd seen at St. Peter's Basilica, again, the extravagance, the statues, all the, the artwork in the Vatican, you know, the, the painting in the Sistine Chapel, all those things... 
And yet here, the most important thing that was happening in Rome in that day was one monk climbing up these stairs thinking to himself, who knows if it's so. God was dealing deeply with his soul. I'll tell you, one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my entire life was being there at the the Scala Sancta, and we walked into the place and uh, seeing these people climbing up there on their knees, going up there, because they're doing the same thing Luther was doing 500 years ago. They're thinking that somehow climbing up this, they're going to get closer to God. They're going to please God somehow. And, uh, you know, there's no photographs in there. They're telling everybody to be dead quiet. You can't say anything. I wanted to just holler out, you know, Luther figured all this out 500 years ago. You know, you don't need to climb up this thing. If you want to just climb up it on your own, that's fine. I got no problem with that. But don't think you're going to earn merit with God because of this. See, the problem now for Luther is he's been to Rome where he thought he could find peace and find the truth, and he leaves and comes back more disillusioned than when he went because his thinking was, if there's no salvation to be found in Rome, where in the world are you going to find it? So he's more disillusioned now than he was before. In fact, in Luther's own words, he said, I went to Rome with onions and I came home with garlic. So here he is, a disillusioned man. That brings us to the third of these experiences in Luther's life, and this is wonderful. This is one of the the great stories, I think, of church history. It's called the Tower Experience. So Luther in 1505 has the thunderstorm experience. He he says, you know, Saint Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. And he goes into uh, the, the monastery, to the monastic life, and doesn't find peace there. I mean, he takes the trip to Rome in 1510. He doesn't find peace there. But finally, in 1515, at least that's the date I think that's the, the, the best date, he has this um, experience in Rome or, or, or back in uh, Wittenberg. So what happens is not long after he gets back from Rome, Luther leaves the monastery and begins teaching at uh, the university there in Wittenberg. It's a new university. It hadn't been going very long in his day, kind of a fledgling university. He's there in Wittenberg. It's a town of 2,000 people. If you've ever been there, the old t- town is about, just about a mile long. So it's just a, a small German village. And again, this is the town where he would two years later nail the 95 Theses on the door there at the castle church. But Luther begins teaching theology at the, at the university there at Wittenberg. And in addition to his teaching, he's preaching at the local church there. It's called the City Church of St. Mary's. Later became known as the Mother Church of the Reformation. But 1515 marks the key event in Martin Luther's life. Luther began studying and then began lecturing on the book of Romans there in the theology department at Wittenberg University. He'd been teaching Psalms before that, but now he began to lecture on the book of Romans. And not far into the book, when he got to chapter 1 and verse 17, and Luther read about the righteousness of God, Luther again uh, was trembling at the thought of of God's righteousness. In fact, uh, he was haunted by the specter of a righteous God. It haunted Luther in his life. Uh, the, the righteousness of God struck fear into the heart of Martin Luther. So when he gets to Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It struck fear in his heart because he knew that although he was an impeccable monk, he knew that he was sinful. And Luther knew that God was righteous and just. I mean, if there's one thing he knew, he knew that. But he knew that no matter how hard he tried or what he did, he could never satisfy God's demands. And so the ultimate barrier, Luther believed, between him and God was God's righteousness and Luther's sin. 
He knew God was righteous. He knew that he was a sinner. And he saw no way to bridge the gap between a righteous God and between his sinful soul. Luther saw no way to do it. He was in despair. The crisis for Luther comes in in this tower experience. And again, the verse he's been thinking about as he's studying Romans is Romans 1.17, which says, for in it, it, that means in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Again, this is Martin Luther's verse. He's meditating on this. He's thinking about it. And he's scared to death because it tells him about the righteousness of God. But Luther is reading uh, and studying, and he runs across a little article by St. Augustine, who'd lived some hundreds, hundreds of years before. And he reads that, and one day for Luther, the, the light clicks in his head, and he realizes that the righteousness of God in this verse that's being talked about is not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but it's the righteousness God gives to people who don't have any righteousness of their own. It's the righteousness God makes available to sinners. It's the righteousness God gives to people who trust in Jesus Christ. You see, Luther, the whole time he was thinking about the righteousness of God, he was thinking about that as an attribute of God, and certainly God is righteous. But the righteousness of God in this verse is a righteousness that God gives as a gift to sinners who trust in Christ. Notice it says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From faith to faith literally means faith from start to finish or faith from first to last. From first to last in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that God gives to us based on faith. The last part of the verse says, the righteous, the just shall live. We come alive spiritually. We live by faith. That's how this righteousness is received. And he realized for the first time when he understood the gospel what it meant to be rescued by someone else's righteousness. And the breakthrough came in that tower. And here's what Luther said. I'll put up the last part of it here in a moment. But it's in in this tower. And uh, Luther's study is up in the top of this tower. And... um, This later, this was a monastery, and it later became Luther's house where he and his wife Catherine of Bora lived, and uh, she was a great, great help to Luther. But it's in this tower here, in this tower, that Luther has this revelation. And here's what he said later, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Luther actually said, he said, I blasphemed God. I hated God because I knew that he was righteous and I knew he was going to judge me, but I knew that I could never be righteous. And so he says, I hated God a just angry God. I murmured against him. So he's thinking this over, Romans 1.17, and then the, the watershed comes, the breakthrough comes, if you will. Here's his great quote that he gave, night and day I pondered, 
until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be born again and to enter into the open gates into paradise. That's the moment when Luther was born again. And he said, I entered through the gates of paradise. Because he came to understand that the righteousness of God here is not just that God is righteous, but it's a righteousness that God gives to those who trust in Jesus Christ. He could never be righteous. If there's ever a man who knew that, it was Luther. For the first time in his life, he realized, if I will believe in Jesus Christ, God will give me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, then I can be pleasing to God and I can stand just. Uh, before God. That was the watershed moment in his life. And let me just say this, that's the watershed moment in any person's life when they come to realize that. Here's a couple of quotes by Luther, a couple of things he said later. We believe the very beginning and the end of salvation and the sum of Christianity consists of faith in Christ, who by his blood alone and not by any works of ours has put away sin and destroyed the power of death. Here's a couple other beautiful statements by him. He says, the law says, do this. It's never done. Grace says, believe in this man, and immediately everything is done. Isn't that beautiful? Believe in this man, the Lord Jesus. Everything's done. And I love that last, this last statement he, he made. What is ours became his, and what is his became ours. That's the gospel. What's mine became his. He took my sin. What is his became mine. He gave me his righteousness. The only way that a sinful person can stand before a holy God is we have to have a righteousness outside of ourselves. We'll talk about this next week, but Luther called it an alien righteousness, righteousness outside of ourselves. God has to give it to us. And that way then we can stand before a holy God. Here's a couple of other really good quotes I ran across. These are some books, if you want to read some books about the Reformation. This is a great book, The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. Very good. It's not real long, very, very succinct, but good. He said, here Luther saw for the first time truly good news of a kind and generous God who gives sinners the gift of his own righteousness. The Christian life then could not be about the sinner's struggle to achieve his own paltry human righteousness. It was about accepting God's own perfect righteousness. Here now was a God who does not want our goodness but our trust. Luther found there's a God who just wants me to trust Him. That's what he wants. Um, Rescuing the Gospel by Erwin Lutzer is a really good book as well. He says, we must remind the world that the gospel of the New Testament is for the spiritually needy who have nothing to offer God. They come not to give, but to receive. They come not just to be helped, but to be rescued. Their contribution to salvation is their sin. God's grace supplies everything else. The only thing we contribute is our sin. That's all we have to offer. God's grace supplies everything else. He credits to us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, there's one strange twist to this story that I want to mention here that's fascinating. And in an odd way, this hit me when I was reading Metaxas' book more than anything else. The, the, the tower experience that Luther has, his, his uh, office was in the top of this tower. It was the only heated building in, in, the, air, in the place. But down in the bottom was the outhouse, was, was the restroom, the latrine, whatever word you want to use it. They call it in his writings, the outhouse. Luther, later on in his writings, would, would tell that the great revelation to him of justification by faith alone came to him while he was sitting on the toilet. That's what he says in his later writings. 
That was funny. After the 945 service, one of the ladies came up to me and she said, I know the only thing my kids are going to get out of this sermon is that Martin Luther was on the toilet when he got this revelation. I said, well, that's good. If they got that, that's good. Kids pick up important things oftentimes. But he, he makes this statement, and, and, but Luther's, the, the irony of this was not lost on Luther. Luther commented, and you can read, and by the way, if you read in Eric Metaxas' book, pages 96 to 98, Luther used very graphic language, very vulgar language. It's even in German as vulgar about where he was and what was happening there. I won't go into detail. I told some people, I read uh, some of Metaxas' quotes to my wife, Cheryl, and she said, you're not going to say that in church, are you? I said, no, I'm not going to say that in church. People will get the point. But Luther is there, and it wasn't lost on him because he said, he said, look, in Rome, I was in Rome, and you have all the glitz and the glamour and the money and all of the extravagance. And he said, God came and gave me the greatest of all revelations while I was sitting on the toilet. I mean, he saw the, the contrast in that. And Metaxas says this, that God gave Luther the greatest revelation in the most humbling and humiliating of places upon the toilet. I mean, it was almost just to show Luther again the, the, the fact that there's nothing we can do whatsoever to please God in any way. Eric Metaxas says this. He says, where Luther received this revelation was the ultimate antithesis to the gold and bejeweled splendor of papal Rome. And this wasn't lost on Luther. If you go read his writings, he's very graphic in what he says, that the way God came and revealed this to him. Metaxas says this. This is a great quote about, about what Luther believed and what this tower experience showed him. He said, Luther saw in this the essence of Christian theology. God reached down not halfway to meet us in our vileness, but all the way down to the foul dregs of our broken humanity. And this holy and loving God dared to touch our lifeless and rotting essence, and in doing so underscored that this is the truth about us. In fact, we are not sick and in need of healing. We're dead and in need of resurrecting. We're not dusty and in need of a good dusting. We're fatally befouled with death, fatally toxic filth, and require total redemption. If we do not recognize that we need eternal life from the hand of God, we remain in our sins and we're eternally dead. And that's exactly what uh, Luther believed. And that's what this tower experience revealed to him. He said, in it, in the gospel... The righteousness that God gives to us is revealed from faith to faith. It's faith from first to last. As the Scriptures tell us, the just, the righteous one will live. We come alive by faith. It's faith from first to last. Look, we can't be wrong about how to be right with God. We have to be right about how to be right with God. It's the one issue in life we must get right. And there's a lot of other verses that bear this out. I'm just going to read four of them quickly for us. Romans 4, 5. Look at how it starts. But to the one who does not work. I'm stated right there. To him who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. God credits faith as righteousness. He credits to our heavenly bank account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the one who doesn't work. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified or declared righteous before God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Luther loved the book of Galatians. He called Galatians my epistle. In fact, he, at one time he said, I am wedded to the epistle of the Galatians. I mean, he's married to it. He says, it is my Catherine of Bora. That's his wife's name. I mean, he loved the epistle to the Galatians. 
And here's what Galatians 2.16 says. Now, I don't know how words can say it any more clearly than this. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I mean, you can't say it more clearly than that says it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that was recovered uh, through God's dealings with Martin Luther. And in Galatia, Philippians 3, now we're actually going to be in this verse next week. Providentially, God has us in this section next time. But what a verse. This is the gospel. That we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God on the basis of faith. That's how we get righteousness. It's the righteousness God gives to us on the basis of faith. This whole idea of justification by faith was so central to Luther. He's later said this, if the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. This is the chief doctrine from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone, it alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince and lord and ruler and judge over all kinds of doctrines. He says, if, if it's the article upon which the church stands or falls. That's true. How can a person be right with God? This is the issue upon which the church stands or falls. It's that central to what we believe. Well, let's fast forward to the end of Luther's life. Uh, the end of Martin Luther's life. Um, he's lying there in bed. A lot of people are coming and going. They know that he's about to die. And uh, one of his friends comes and says this to Luther on his deathbed. He says, Revered Father, are you ready to die trusting in your Lord Jesus Christ and to confess the doctrine which you have taught in his name? And the story goes that Martin Luther, in a very weak voice, said, Yeah. He said, Yes. He rolled over, took a few deep breaths, finally one extremely deep breath. And then he went on uh, to eternity to be with the Lord. You, know, you can ask people this question at various times in life, but when you're lying there and you know that your death is going to be in a, uh, just a few minutes, are you ready to die trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and to confess his doctrine which you've taught in his name? And he said, yeah. He rolls over. He dies and he goes to be with the Lord. When Luther died, though, they found something in his jacket. They found a, a, a note that he'd written. It was, his last, it was the last words that he ever wrote. He'd written it not long before he died. Someone saw him writing it and put it in his pocket. He wrote a paragraph, and I won't read the paragraph, but the very last words Martin Luther ever wrote, or ever wrote are these words, we are beggars, this is true. What a way to, what a way to, to, to view life. We're beggars, this is true. Martin Luther knew that he was a beggar, he knew that he was bankrupt. He knew that in himself, he had nothing that he could offer to a holy God that in some way uh, could placate uh, God's just wrath against him. But Martin Luther found the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. And that's where uh, he took his stand. And look, that's true of all of us as well. We have no righteousness of our own. Earlier, I quoted uh, that statement by Luther where he says, justification by faith is the article upon which the church stands or falls, and that's true, but it's also true that justification is the article upon which pers each person stands or falls, because you and I stand or fall spiritually based on one decision in life, and that is, will we trust in our own righteousness or will we trust in the righteousness that God gives us through Jesus Christ? Those are really the only two options in life. 
Will we trust our own righteousness? Or will we give up on ourselves as Luther did? Or we trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone to save us? Look, if you've never done so, what you need to do this morning is to trust in Jesus Christ right now. You need to be justified by faith alone right now in Jesus Christ alone. It's the only hope you'll ever have to stand before God uh, someday in the judgment. So if you'll come to the Lord as Luther did and admit your sin, if you'll receive God's righteousness and acceptance in Jesus Christ, God right now will give you eternal life and will give you right standing before a holy God. What is ours became his. What is his uh, becomes ours. If you know the Lord today, I'll leave you with this last thought by Luther. He made this statement, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's one of the great things you and I can do. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Sometime during the day to say, you know what? What Luther said is true. This is true. We're all beggars. We're all beggars. But Jesus Christ came and he died for me. And just by simply putting my faith and my trust in him, God gave me the very righteousness of Jesus Christ so I can stand before him. That changes our whole way of life. That is the wellspring. That is the fountainhead literally of all of life. So I pray that each one of us here will be moved by what we've heard through the life of Martin Luther. Really what he says is just a reflection of what's in the Bible. And I pray that each one of us, as we go forward, as you leave here and you go out tomorrow morning or sometime tomorrow, you'll preach the gospel to yourself. Maybe you'll do it on Tuesday and Wednesday and each day after that. We'll revel in the grace of God that he's given to us, this wonderful salvation uh, by faith alone. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for rescuing us, for for giving us your righteousness by faith alone. Jesus took what was ours and he's given us what was his. Oh, Father, we praise you for so great salvation. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus, may they be moved to do it this morning, to not leave here without right standing before a holy God. And Father, I pray as we leave here today that each one of us would be motivated throughout these coming days and weeks to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, from the car or alone or wherever we may be by ourselves, to think of the wonderful message that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it's written, the just shall live by faith. Well, Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus. May his name be praised forever. Amen. Let's stand for the benediction, please, as we're dismissed. Again, if you're a guest or a visitor with us, we're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll come back next week to get back in our study in the book of Philippians. And on your way out this morning, on the left-hand side there in the foyer, there's a, a welcome center, and there's some folks there that'd love to welcome you and give you some more information about our church. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.